It's good to be with everyone this evening. My name is Joseph Bianco. I'm an assistant pastor at City Reformed. And I'm glad that you are here. And glad that you are particularly in this building. This is different than our morning service. Uh, Our morning service is in the 20th Century Club. You are in a building that we own. We rent the building of the morning service. Um, And so uh, there's an extra dose of hospitality, I suppose. Uh, We are glad that you're with us, and we invite you to stay afterwards as well. Um, We're on page 6 of your bulletin, and we are in Jonah chapter 3. We've been preaching through uh, Jonah. We're going to continue that series today. I'm going to read this word in a response uh, week in and out. Just thanks be to God. So hear the word of the Lord from Jonah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying... Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for, uh, Lord, all it conveys to us, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us attentiveness uh, to it, um, both in mind and our hearts, Lord, that we would be filled with the fullness of your spirit, uh, that we would receive all of the reproof, all of the correction, but also all the encouragement. Uh, that we find, Lord, in these words. Lord, use uh, me in my weakness and in my strength, Lord, and my whole being that I would preach this word with power, that it would indeed change our hearts and our lives. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be at work. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I was uh, doing some research um, for this sermon, and I came across an article entitled, and it was by National Geographic, Uh, Exclusive photos show destruction of Nineveh gates by ISIS. So ISIS had destroyed the gates of Nineveh uh, in 2016. And there are these pictures uh, that show the once, these very large historic gates of Nineveh uh, blown up, destroyed. Um, But the thing that actually caught my attention as I was uh, reading this article was the irony of the article. You see, Nineveh was known, as we've learned in the sermon series, for being a really evil place, a horrible place. Historically, Assyria, which governed Nineveh, was 
also known for being a really evil uh, world power. They did some awful things. So I find it ironic that ISIS, a terrorist organization, would destroy the gates of this evil city. I also find it ironic because in our text today, the people of Nineveh, this evil city, repent. And they turn from their sin, while ISIS destroys their gates. I find it ironic because I doubt if you went back to that city, you read the things that I read about how evil Nineveh was, that there is that much difference between an organization like ISIS and the evil that went on in the city of Nineveh. And as I thought about it, a uh, question arose in my mind. How would you feel if God came and forgave ISIS? It's actually a similar comparison. Now, of course, this would mean that ISIS repented of their sins, but if they repented, would you trust them? Would you believe them? Would you want to have them be forgiven? What about justice? What about all the atrocities that they committed? What about all the wrong they did? You know, it's actually very on the nose when we're thinking about our text today. Nineveh was a great city, the text says. It's estimated that it held, at the time of Jonah, roughly 120,000 people. Uh, during the time uh, a little after Jonah, a little less than 100 years later, it would hold over 300,000 people. In contrast, uh, ISIS is estimated at 30,000 members, which is not small. Nineveh was very evil, and God called Jonah the second time to come and give them God's word. But the miracle of this story is that when Jonah proclaims the word of God, the whole city repents. I want you to imagine all of ISIS putting up their hands and trusting in Jesus as their Savior. It feels unimaginable. But that's what happened at the time of Jonah. Today we're going to look at that miracle and see that while repentance of a city is a miracle, even the repentance of someone like me or like you is a miracle of God. The miracle of repentance comes through the power of God's word. That's my first point. To an evil people, that's my second point. And because of God's relentless grace, it comes through the power of God's word to an evil people and because of God's relentless grace. Let's look at the power of God's word. So one of the first things we notice in this text is that the word, word, is repeated multiple times. We have verse 1, verse 3, verse 6 is the calling out of the word, and then verse 2, verse 4, and the proclamation of the word by the king in verse 7. So there's a lot in this text about God's word proclaimed. Now, God said to Jonah, verse 2, to call out God's message against the people of Nineveh. So this is not Jonah's word. This is God's word. In fact, we will remember that if a prophet of God uttered anything other than God's word, he would be killed. So Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, anything I have not commanded... Where a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods is to be put to death. So, we can be fairly certain here, because Jonah did not die, that this message he is proclaiming is the message of God. Verse 4, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
We can also be fairly confident, uh, and almost every commentator I've read agrees with this, that this was just a small sample of what Jonah said to the Ninevites. We know it for several reasons, I'll get into later in our sermon, but for now we have to wrestle with the fact that God is speaking by his proclamation, by his word, directly to an entire city, a great city. I want you to imagine for a second that God comes to speak to the city of Pittsburgh. To Pittsburghers. And his message for us is, yet 40 days and Pittsburgh will be overthrown. That feels a little closer to home. Now while Jonah may have said more than this, uh, we're not given what else he said to the city of Nineveh. But what we are given is somewhat jarring and it's fairly harsh. You know, Jonah didn't even say, repent and then maybe God will forgive you. He said, verse 4, in 40 days God's wrath will destroy you. You shall be overthrown. It's very certain. So the Lord decided in his providence to give us the readers, in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. Which may be just part of what Jonah said, but it's what we have, and we have to ask the question as good readers of this text, why? Why, Lord, did you give us just these words? What are you showing us? I want you to remember that Jonah did not want to give this word to the Ninevites. Jonah did not think that they were worthy of repentance. Jonah may have not preached this word well, even if he preached exactly what God said. So what is God showing us? I believe this is the answer. That any word of God, as long as it is God's word, has the power to change the world. Any word of God, as long as it is God's word, has the power to change the world. So let me give you an example, and this is encouraging for me uh, as I reflected on it. I am not the best preacher, um, and my words can often fail or I can fall short in communicating what I'm trying to communicate. Um, but so long, and this is my confidence, as I'm preaching God's word, he can even use my weak communication to change hearts and minds and lives for his goodness and glory. God's word is not dependent on my ability to proclaim it. And that is freeing for me as a preacher, and it should be freeing for you when you share that word with other people. Jonah despised the Ninevites, Maybe, verse 4, is the only section of prophecy we are given to further that point, that he wanted Nineveh destroyed. Remember, that's the whole reason why he originally fled God, that he was afraid that God might be gracious to this evil people. But what shines forth in this text is that immediately following the proclamation, this doomsday proclamation, Nineveh, you're all going to die. We have verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the great, greatest of them to the least. Where's the power in that statement? It's not in Jonah's ability to proclaim the word. It's in the spirit of God who changes the hearts of these Ninevites through the proclaimed word. Any word of God, as long as it is God's word from the Holy Scripture has the power to change the world. Do you believe it? 
Do you believe it, it is dependent on the word of God and not on you? Now I want you to put your seatbelts on for just a minute. For Christians in the room, do you believe that you, having heard and received the word of God and believed it, is an utter miracle? Do you believe that as miraculous as it was for the Ninevites to repent, so miraculous is it that God's word would move you to repent? Or do you think that there is something fundamentally different between you and the Ninevites in this text? That is the pride of Jonah, right there. Thinking that he was better than the Ninevites, better than this city. I want you to look at what the text says. God cared about this great city. God wanted his word to go to this evil city. God's word has not just power for the believer, the Christian, but power for the non-Christian. And one is not more deserving to receive that word than the other. Anyone that comes to faith that would repent of their sin myself included, is a miracle of God. Now, I need to be careful in my own heart of two things. The first is, do I look at myself as better than others because I have believed in the Word of God? I have to ask myself that. Second, am I cynical that when sharing that Word, I don't actually believe that it'll change anything? Am I putting the power of the message and my ability to communicate it or in the Spirit of God who works through it. The power of God's Word, not the power of Jonah, is what shines through in this text. That anyone would turn from their sin is a testimony to the power and miracle of God's work. This brings us to our second point, that this miracle of repentance comes to an evil people. So I know I just spent all this time telling us not to elevate ourselves above other people. Um, And I'm not calling them an evil people because that's my opinion. That's how the text describes them. I want you to remember earlier in Jonah, when God first calls Jonah to preach his word to the Ninevites, he says, their evil has come up before me. God sees it. Historically, Nineveh was known as a really, really evil city. They had horrible acts. Um, But lastly, I use the language because it's And it's very apparent in the text. Verse 8, the Ninevites recognize themselves as really bad. Um, The king proclaims, verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. So apparently it was bad enough in Nineveh uh, that even Nineveh themselves could recognize that their violence was destroying their own city. So this was, in every respect, an evil people. And yet, that's the people that God wanted his word to go to. So let me try to put some feet on this for us. I want you to picture in your mind the person in your life you think is least likely to receive the gospel. Think about whoever that is. Is it a co-worker, a friend? Maybe it's an angry atheist? Maybe a politician that you don't know? Uh, the angry troll on Facebook. Maybe a person who is very devoted to a completely different religion. 
Now, I want you to ask yourself, what keeps me from sharing the gospel with that person? And all of a sudden, we see we are not so different than Jonah. We don't share the gospel with those people because to us, it makes no sense. Why would they believe? They're so devoted to this other religion. They have such strong opinions about this other thing. Why would they want to hear? Why would they believe? And we judge people in our hearts without knowing their hearts. And hearts will never know. Listen, I'm not speaking down to you. I have done this thing just even recently in my own life. We do it even subconsciously. We just presume that God's word has no place to an evil people. God's word is for an evil people. God's word is for an evil people. Maybe you came to church today and you were not expecting me to say something like that. Maybe you came to church and thought church is all about goody two-shoes people, people that have it all together, have their lives together. I have nothing else to say to you other than you're wrong. I want you to look at this text. God brings his word to a city of junkies, of addicts, of prostitutes, of murderers, of liars, of thieves, to the sexually promiscuous and to the abusers. If you have come today and you are hearing this word, thinking that this word is only for the good people, the people that have it together, I am here to tell you it is for you. It's for you. And those people you think have it all together, they don't. I don't. We are all equally in need of the saving grace of God and Jesus Christ. God's word is for an evil people and it has the power to move those people to change, to repent, to turn. There's a lot in this text about repentance, about Nineveh turning from their sin. I want you to notice it begins uh, with the people, verse 5, from the greatest uh, to the least, and then reaches the king, verse 6. And then the king sends out an edict uh, that goes out to all the people to repent. And then the whole city hears this word. I mean, it is very much like we think of a, of a revival, of a miracle. You know, I've said earlier that it is a miracle that a whole city would repent. But remember, even that one would repent is a miracle of God. So repentance, for those who don't know that word or aren't familiar with it, by the way, just means turning. It means a turning from sin and to God. We have a good picture of it with the king in our text. Turn from evil and call out to God, says this king. We have another interesting picture of repentance in this sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth is really better called hair cloth as it was made of uh, camel's hair or goat's hair. It was itchy and it was uncomfortable. Ashes was... It's just simply dust, or it could literally be ashes. But it's a picture of repentance. It's a picture of not just giving word service. Lord, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. Off to my next thought. It's actually a picture of sitting and dwelling for a, a while in our sin. That we would consider it. Now, if you continue down this road, um, uh, theologically, you get into some interesting things to think about. You see, Nahum completely other prophet, another minor prophet. Remember the book of Nahum. Uh, Nahum is a book in the Bible where the whole book is basically devoted to um, how Nineveh falls back into sin after the story. And then 
God's wrath comes upon Nineveh. Uh, and Nineveh will be destroyed by the Babylonians. So, you could read this text as, well, this was not genuine repentance of the Ninevites. Because a hundred years later, they fall into sin again. So, I am generally against this reading, uh, and I'll give you two reasons why. So, first, the argument depends largely on what is not in the text. <clears throat> so, what I mean by that is... Um, some commentators will argue, well, there's no sign of the things that would accompany repentance in this text, like covenant-making with the Lord God, or sacrifices, or any of those things that you might see in the Old Testament um, that would follow conversion for an ancient Israelite. So again, in general, we have to be very careful arguing from the negative, just by what's not there. So it's not a very strong argument. But two, <clears throat> the fact while they repent here um, later, I, I said that uh, in Nahum, they rebel again. We have to ask the question, was their repentance disingenuous? Um, and a few things on this. First, Israel. Israel, that is the, the people of God. God's holy people go back and forth all the time. We go back and forth all the time. Um, and yet they are called God's people too. Almost a hundred years passes between what happens here in Nineveh and then the destruction of Nineveh later. So for uh, all intents and purposes, this could be a completely different generation. And then three, I want you to look at your own heart. If you have repented and turned to Jesus, have you ever sinned again? Are we perfect? So Tim Keller says this, and I found it encouraging. I hope you find it encouraging. He says, Martin Luther, as a reformer, opened the Reformation by nailing the 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. The very first of these theses was, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. On the surface, this looks a little bleak. Luther seems to be saying Christians will never be, may, be making much progress. But of course, that was not Luther's point at all. He wasn't saying that repentance is the way we make progress in the Christian life. Indeed, pervasive, all of life repentance is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly in the character of Jesus, end quote. Like sanctification, like being a process of where we're made holy and made more like Jesus, repentance is initial and repentance is progressive. There's that moment in our life where we turn from our sin and we embrace Jesus as our Savior, the moment that God declares us his child. But there is, from that moment, he continues his work in us, continually bringing us to a place of repenting of our sins. Do you believe that the repentance of God in your life is a miracle? Do you believe that God could move an evil people to repentance? That a whole nation could turn to the living God? So I actually think in general, we Christians can believe these things. I think the problem is actually when we apply these truths to our own hearts. So we either minimize our need to repent, thinking of ourselves as better than we are, looking down on evil people, or we become so self-deprecating that we forget that God is using that repentance to grow us, 
to change us, that we really are growing, that we are really not the same people we were five, ten years ago. And I bet if you look back five, ten years ago, you can see the ways, tremendous ways, the Lord has changed you. Christian, rejoice. Be glad the Lord is at work in us. Now, it is one thing for uh, it to be a miracle that people like me would turn away from their sin. It is another that God would relent from giving us the punishment we deserve. I want to look at that now, and this is my third point, God's relentless grace. So I gave this title to my uh, third point as a bit of play on words. Verse 9, the king says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And I want you to hear that language. Turn, relent, turn. There's a lot of turning and relenting. Verse 10, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Again, the same language. Turn, relent. Turn. So why does our text push all this turning and relenting? Next week, uh, in the well, not the next the next sermon in this series. Next time we hear it, uh, we will see that Jonah is sulking to see what God did, and I believe it is because Jonah did not uh, want Nineveh, or he wanted Nineveh to bear the consequences of their sin. He wanted to see them pay. But here we have, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, he relented. And he didn't give them what they deserved, which was worse than death. Repentance is not the only miracle in our text today. God's grace is another miracle in our text. I want you to put your lawyer hats on for just a second. I want you to think with me. You have a perfectly holy God, and he demands holiness from his people, which is not just sinless living, it is faithful obedience to him. And then there is a people, this people of Nineveh, in utter rebellion, completely in an evil way. Not only is Nineveh evil and wicked, but they are not called God's people. They are a separate people, they are not Jewish. And yet, the Lord seems to have the same mercy on Nineveh as he offers for when Israel rebels. It seems unfair. Where's the justice, you say, with your lawyer hats on? So let me make it a little more real for you. You can take your lawyer hats off. Your next door neighbor, uh, I want you to pretend that he is a murderer and a child abuser. He easily could have been one of the Ninevites. And we're talking about the evil they did in the city. You want your neighbor dead. He's gotten away with it. You know what he's done. You'd want him dead. I would want him dead. Um, but God comes to your neighbor. And your neighbor turns from his sin into God. And God relents. Maybe you're thinking, God, this man deserves death. He deserves worse than death. It would be better for everyone if he died. He hurt people. He's abused children. Is God being unjust by letting that man live? I bet that is how Jonah is feeling with the actions of what God did. A whole city of murderers. A whole city of child abusers. 
And God relents. Where's the justice? Where in your life do you ask God that question? Where is the justice, Lord? Where is the justice? Where is that your cry to God? You know, the very last words in the Bible, the very last words of the whole canon of Scripture wrestle with that question, where is the justice? Revelation 22.20. Jesus says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then he says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The last words of the Bible say two highly related things. Jesus will bring the justice and grace be upon you. Come, Lord Jesus, and grace be upon you. We love the first part. Come, Jesus, bring the justice. But the second part, grace be upon me. Why do I need grace? Because I, too, deserve the wrath of God. We said last week that every sin leads to death, which means that if we are truly being just, if we truly have our lawyer hats on, all of us deserve a divine punishment. Because every one of us has sinned. And when we look at that neighbor, that murderer, or even a child abuser, and we hate him in our hearts to the point where we want to see him destroyed, but God relents, well then we have become the judge of that man. We have become his arbiter. I want you to put it this way. If God chooses to show grace to someone you think does not deserve it, who is right? Are you right or is God right? If you lack graciousness with people, it is because you fail to see God's grace to you. The Lord chose to relent because the people turned. To put some legs on this, let me ask you, who are the people in your life you cannot forgive? Who are the people with whom you are ungracious, unkind, harsh, Hurt, rude? Is it your spouse? Do you look at your wife or your husband and just rain down judgment on them because they don't put the dishes in the dishwasher the way you do? Or maybe uh, more seriously, because they don't think as logically as you do or as fluidly as you would like them to think? Is it a race of people? Do you look down on people because of the color of their skin? Or the accent of their tongue? Do you judge them and think them less intelligent or less deserving, lesser than you? Is it an enemy? An enemy you have, an evil person? Maybe someone who has so hurt you that you're unwilling to forgive them, that you hold hate in your heart over them, that you long to see them pay for what they've done, that there was real, let me say this very clearly, there was real injustice done to you. Make no mistake. But you still cannot forgive them. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe you've come to church today and you just think, I'm such an awful person, I cannot be forgiven. That you're beyond help. That you hate yourself. I want everyone to hear this. If God chooses to forgive an evil people who would repent and turn to Him, Who are we to judge anyone else?
We, who are we to judge even ourselves? It's funny, that's what the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians 4.3, he says, Indeed, I do not even judge myself. This is why he can say that. Because Christ has taken his judgment. And he's taken yours, and he's taken mine. Jesus did not just take all of our judgment who looked back on him, who trust in him. He took the judgment of all who looked forward to him and who would trust in him to those Old Testament believers. So look, justice was satisfied. Justice was satisfied for the Ninevites. God could relent because all of the sin of that evil people was placed on the back of Christ. All of the evil the people committed was put on our Lord as he hung on the cross. If you have repented and your faith is in Jesus, all of your sins Jesus takes upon himself on the cross. The degree to which we see our sin put on Jesus is the degree to which we will be gracious with our neighbor. The degree to which we look to Jesus for justice is the degree to which we will be able to forgive even our worst enemies. Look, there is tremendous freedom in not carrying around hate and judgment and removing ourselves from the seat that does not belong to us. There is also tremendous freedom in receiving grace and forgiveness in your own life because of your own sin. Both are possible because of the work of Christ. And that is why repentance is a miracle. That even one person would turn from their sin. You begin to see clearly what Jesus did for you, for me, on the cross. That even the best of us to turn away from our sin must be a miracle of God. Today, we are a church full of miracles. Men and women who claim Christ as their Savior. And I look at so many of you And I'm just so thankful for the work of the Lord in your life. If this is not you, uh, he just asks for your faith, that you would believe in him and you will be saved. Let's pray.